here we are now with episode number one of our series, You Are the Chosen One. The story of Harry Potter begins in the world of the Dursleys. We really step into how they see things and what their life is like. They live in a conservative world where everything is normal. All the houses are the same. Mr. Dursley has a bland job. And absolutely everything is perfectly normal. And the first sentence, the very first line of this series reads as thus. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four Privet Drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. And within that one sentence, there lies one of the biggest themes and the deepest themes of the entire series. And that is the division between two worlds, the normal and the paranormal. And you can see by the tone of voice, you can feel immediately by stepping into the conservative the conservative worldview of the Dursleys, that there's something else. And when they say, thank you very much, there's something quite rude. There is something quite rude about saying, thank you very much, when you haven't done something for someone. Now, when someone says, thank you very much, in that kind of tone of voice, it doesn't really mean thank you. It means... Well, quite the opposite. (laughs) And just like the reversal of manners, because usually thank you is a polite thing to say. You're using your manners. It's a warm-hearted thing to say. It's a good thing to say. The words thank you are meant to mean something positive. But when they're used in a negative way, they're used very negatively. And that's a micro-expression. That's a micro-world, a micro-duality of the polite being corrupted against how things really are when you're polite. And that parallels with this world of, oh, everything is absolutely normal. And we can see straight away, well, obviously something's up. This person has come along and said, we're very proud to be perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Immediately, it's obvious to the rest of us that there's something else going on. And we follow around Mr. Dursley for a little bit, and he does his job, he does his routine, 
and he starts to notice some strange people in strange clothing. Oh, there are some weirdos about more than usual. This is very strange. Oof, how terrible, how bad. And some of them even murmur and whisper to each other, and he overhears some of their conversation. And it's something to do with the potters. And then he thinks, oh dear, could this have something to do with me? Could this have something to do with one of my relatives? Heaven forbid that these weirdos would have anything to do with me. Because I am completely normal. There's nothing special about me at all. And there's no way that anyone is ever going to prove otherwise. On his way home from work, one day, Mr. Dursley notices a cat sitting on his front drive or somewhere about the neighborhood. And for a split second, he thinks to himself, honestly, it looks like this cat is reading the street sign. And then he sort of shakes his head and brushes it off. Of course not. That's not happening. Cats don't read street signs. And that's quite a funny thing, because I think at some point, at some time, each of us do wonder, well, how much do our pets know? How much do animals know? Are they listening to us? Especially if you've got a pet dog or a pet cat that sits around the house. You do have to wonder. Well, you're saying these things, and they're sitting there listening. And it's not as if they're completely oblivious, because they understand certain things when you call their name, or you say, come on, let's go, or certain tones of voice, then the dog does understand. And this has an even deeper implication, which is, the divide between what's known and what's known in someone else. And this also is a very big theme that comes up in this story. How does someone else see things? What does someone else know? And really, the unraveling of this plot is the learning of that difference finding out who knows things and who doesn't, and finding things for yourself. And it's funny that in Mr. Dursley, there's an intuition which he's suppressing. And that is the intuition of this weirdness, the intuition of this strangeness, these strange people, and this cat that's reading a, a map or a street sign. It shows that in him... There's something that wonders. There's something that's curious. And this whole facade of, oh, we are proud to say that we are perfectly normal, thank you very much, is really just a front of him suppressing something that's within him. It's a resistance that he's putting up against an intuition
So as it turns out, something has happened to a distant relative of Mr. Dursley's. And that night, a very strange man turns up on his street. And this man has all sorts of strange gadgets. Most famously is the sort of pocket lighter which he pulls out and uses to take all the lights out of the street lamps. A very peculiar prop. And he comes to the doorstep and he sees the cat that was reading the street sign. And, well, this cat then turns into a human. Completely morphs. And they start having a conversation together. Right there on the front doorstep of Mr. Dursley's. The weirdness that Mr. Dursley feared is now right at his door, right outside. And it's so much deeper than he could have ever imagined. And in fact, it gets even worse because a few minutes later, <laughs> the, the motorbike comes screaming out of the sky, a flying motorbike, and this giant man comes down holding the bundle, the precious cargo, the precious present, and he joins Dumbledore, our man, our wizard, our strange fellow, and the cat, who of course is Professor McGonagall. And there's a bit of back and forth between, well, should this giant man have been trusted with such an important thing? And Dumbledore says, I would trust this man with my life. And that is also a theme that reoccurs throughout the novel, and particularly between these two characters of Dumbledore and the giant man, Hagrid. Hagrid is his name. I'm sure you knew that. And there's another prop that appears in the novels, but I don't think appears in the books, which is Dumbledore's watch. And on his watch, it's very abstract, and it has planets, and it's very strange. And it's only a cutaway sort of little mention, but it implies something very important, which is that Dumbledore has a different sense of time. This strange man has a different sense of time to what these perfectly proud to say normal Dursleys would have. And there's also a comment about a scar that Dumbledore has. We don't know at this stage where he got the scar, but he says to Professor McGonagall, actually, it turned out that this scar can serve as a map for Lower East London, so it's proved very useful. And immediately we see that there's a deep wisdom in this man, because your scars, another important symbolic part of any character, as we'll learn soon enough when we talk about Harry's scar, 
Your scars say something about you. They say something about where you've been hurt, how you've been hurt. We can imagine that this scar that Dumbledore has is quite deep and would have been quite painful for whatever it was that was happening when he got that scar, when he got that wound. And here he is making light of it. It's sort of practical and funny at the same time. So we see that this man has wisdom because he can turn his deepest traumas into things that are practical and that are light-hearted. And that's a detail that I don't think is in the movies. But it says a lot about this character. This character, this Dumbledore character, there's a lot surrounding him which is very deep and we see that very quickly. He's very trusting of people that aren't normally trusted. He has a different sense of time. He can make jokes about himself. And so on. These things just imply a lot more that we sense that is there. We sense that there is a a surface there which has a lot of depth to it. So, of course, we know that Harry turns up in the Dursley house and it's the nightmare come true for the Dursleys because it's the weird relative that now has to live with them. The unwanted child. And Harry has this scar on his forehead, which is a recurring point of pain for him throughout this story. And there is something about the theme of a character. Well, it's not really a theme. It's, how do we say, a characteristic of a character that has a scar on their face. And this is something that comes up again and again in all sorts of stories and children's stories. For example, in The Lion King, you have the uncle that is called Scarface. That's his name, Scarface. And he's called that because he's got a scar on his face. And there are many characters which have scars on their face. And often there's two, it's sort of two sides to it. Because on the one side, the Scarface is the baddie. Scarface in The Lion King is the bad uncle. He's the evildoer. And on the other side, like in Harry Potter, Harry has his scar on his face and he's the good guy. He's the hero. And of course, there's a lot of complexities to Harry. It's not exactly always as simple as good and bad, but the meaning there is that your pain is seen to everyone. Your hurt has been seen to everyone. Now, the scar that Dumbledore has, which he's talking about, is actually on his leg. So he's not in this same category of someone who has a scar on his face, as in Scarface or Harry Potter. But let's, let's really try and weed this apart a little more before we move on, which is 
when you have your pains showing on your face and there's no way to really hide them, you can become extremely bitter about them and you can remain hurt about them and it can affect the way in which you go towards anyone to face them. What it means to face someone, for someone to show you, to to show someone your face means something when you have a scar on your face. And if you're bitter, it's going to seep into all your relationships in a dark way and you're going to turn into the baddie. But the flip side is that if you are owning your scars and you've integrated your traumas and you've understood your traumas, and you know your pains, then that can actually make you so much more deep in how you relate to people. Because it means you have a wealth of empathy which you can draw on. It means you can sympathize and empathize because you know your own pain. And there's a vulnerability which means showing your face Showing your scars and saying, yes, this is me. I am hurt, but I ask you to accept me as I am. I ask you to allow me to be this hurt thing. And the scar on the face is, well, it's a thing that everyone has, metaphorically. Because psychologically, we've all been hurt in some way. And we all have our conditioning and our psychological profile affecting our relationships. So when we have a character in a fictional story, and they have a scar on their face, they usually fall into the one of two categories, which is it's either Scarface the baddie, Or it's the hero of the story, such as Harry. So Harry has a cousin. And if we look at the family dynamics of how things are set up between Dursley and his cousin, we'd sort of have to say that, well, Dudley, this cousin, he is the chosen one. Because he's got these parents that, well, in a funny sort of way, just love him and adore him, and they spoil him. And they're always telling him how wonderful he is. Oh, Dudley, you're such a sweet boy. And yet Harry, he gets the place under the stairs. He's always being ordered around. He's always being told that he's good for nothing. He's always being abused. He's always being kicked about. His cousin's always bashing him up. And so on. So, on first glance, we can say, well, Dudley is the chosen one. He's been chosen by his parents. And yet, we can see straight away that it happens in all the wrong ways. It's done in such a terrible way. Like, he's overweight, he's really fat, he's ungrateful, he's needy, he's bossy. He's really just a sloth. Like, he's a, he's a dud. 
Dudley the Dud. That's why he's called that. Because he is such a dud. And yet the parents, particularly the mother, keep on pushing this image of, oh, so wonderful. Oh, yes, dear, we'll take care of you. Oh, yes, whatever you want, dear. And in this case, the idea of the chosen one is, well, just the one who's made to feel special by those around him. And I don't know if Dudley really does feel special. I don't know if it's even possible for him to feel special. But by all means, Harry is definitely not the chosen one. He's good for nothing. He should be grateful for whatever he's given, as much as it might seem like scraps. Do as you're told, boy. No funny business, as Mr. Dursley says. And there are a whole bunch of things that happen around Harry which are very strange. Like he keeps growing his hair long to cover his scar. And there's that incident at the zoo where the snake talks to him. And there are all sorts of things. And Harry doesn't know what to make of them. Doesn't make him feel special or anything. He has no idea why it's happening. Until one day, a letter turns up. And this letter is addressed to Harry. And the letter in this story is the symbol of the call from another world. And a specific letter written and addressed to a person is often not how the other world calls. And there are many ways in how the other world calls out to someone. And we can see, we can know, with the benefit of hindsight, that there's this giant world that is reaching out to Harry. It's the wizarding world. It's where he belongs. And it's totally different to where he is now. And this letter comes... And he's so shocked. Why would this be sent to me? He doesn't know anyone. There is no reason at all that he should suspect that there's another world out there. And Mr. Dursley goes to every length possible to shut this off. He takes the letter from Harry and burns it in the fire. And as it turns out, some more letters arrive. And Mr. Dursley takes them. And there's even a scene in the movies where Mr. Dursley is sitting there smiling, saying, yes, these are your letters, and he's putting them on the fire. He's keeping them from Harry. He's actively keeping them from Harry. And yet this world, or wherever these letters are coming from, keeps persisting. More and more. And that happens between a parent and a child. Because the child goes to find things independently of their parents. And the parents try to shelter them. The parents shut them off. 
for many reasons. Often the reason is that they want to keep them safe. And it might be in the case of Mr. Dursley, he's not being so warm and kind to Harry. He's just shutting him off because he wants to control him. Or he's afraid that it might lead to someone finding out that he's got this weird nephew. And so on. There are many reasons why parents hide other things from their children. And we could ask ourselves, well, does Mr. Dursley know? Does he know what he's doing? And the answer to that is only partly. He knows that there's something funny about Harry. He knows that he's from another world. And he knows that there's going to be some back and forth between Harry and this other world. But he doesn't know the extent of it. And Mr. Dursley doesn't know what he can and cannot do to control Harry or to shield him from this or to hide himself, as in Mr. Dursley can hide himself from what's going to happen. So it's not as though... It's not as though Mr. Dursley, like, I don't get the impression Mr. Dursley saying, oh, this is the letter from Hogwarts from Dumbledore and it's time for Harry to go to school, but I don't want him to, so I'm going to burn the letters. He might not know that much. It might be that Mr. Dursley doesn't even know who the letters are from. It might be that Mr. Dursley doesn't even know that Harry is going to go to another school. And there is a point in being raised as a child, as growing up as a child, where you think, why didn't you tell me? And that's a critical point for Harry. So as it happens, the letters keep coming. And there's a wonderful scene in the movie where they're in the house and there's letters flying all over the place. There's thousands and thousands of them. And the symbolic reasoning there, the symbolic sorry, meaning there is that another world will call to you and it will keep calling until you won't be able to ignore it. And the other world calls in many ways, not just in letters. It might be that a person turns up and tells you about another world. It might be that someone shows you part of the other world themselves. It might be as simple as a conversation that you have with someone that happened by chance. And it might be that you hear the call from the other world more like a dream. It's possible to dream of other worlds. And it's possible to have a, a call to go somewhere else come from within. There is a desire that grows from within. There is a longing that starts to whisper. A longing that grows to go to another world. To find the other world. And if you ignore that, well, then you turn conservative. And if you ignore it long enough, you do succeed in suppressing it. 
until you're quite old and you're set in your ways. And even then, little things keep coming up like wondering if that cat is reading the street sign or if that cat is reading the map. And then you suppress it again and you say, no, 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 cats don't read. When really, that sensing of something that is a little bit strange, it's really an aftershock of the call to go to another world. And in the case of Mr. Dursley, well, he's set in his ways. He is stuck. There's no way that that call is going to come through. He's built up his world. He's built up his understanding. And he does every single thing he can to maintain that perspective. Even the smallest thing, even the slightest off chance of a difference between him and something else as small as a letter, something as simple as a letter, is enough to send him crazy with control, with determined, with determined restrictiveness. You feel your parents are restrictive? You feel that anyone is restrictive around you? So Mr. Dursley gets into such a huff that he says, we're moving to this island. And it's wonderful how they do this in the movie. Because they go out on this rickety boat and they find this hut. And it's a big stormy night. And they sort of fall asleep in this cold, dark, rickety place by the sea. And Mr. Dursley is so proud of himself, they'll never be able to reach us here. There's no way anyone could deliver a letter to us here. He's so proud of himself. He has maintained his world. He's gone to the... You see how far, what lengths he'll go to. He's willing to move house and go out on a rickety boat in the cold just to maintain his perspective just to maintain his worldview. And there's a critical moment, which is Harry's 11th birthday. And this is a critical time in a child's development because it's when the call is no longer possible to ignore and the child decides, I'm going to listen to this call. I'm not set in my ways. I'm not going to struggle to maintain my perspective like an old person does, like a parent does. I'm going to be open. Of course, the child is not that conscious of it at the time. The child can't explain why they're opening. But it's that critical moment at the age of 11 when the child realizes that their parents don't have all the answers. Their parents don't know everything. And that is a big realization to have. That is a very big realization to have because up until that time, Harry has just been believing what he's told. 
and he's been told so many things. And it's wonderful in the movie because Harry is sitting there in the dirt and he's making himself an 11th year old, 11 year old birthday cake and he blows out the candles in the dirt and on his cake that he's written, drawn up, pictured up and then boom, someone's at the door and it's this giant smashing against the door and the whole family wakes up Mr. Dursley pulls out a gun and his wife's cowering behind him and it's, oh my goodness, what's happening? And this is another boom and then smash, the wall comes crashing down, the whole door comes off its hinges and there's lightning and there's thunder and he's pointing his gun and, then, and the whole, whole place is shaking. What's going on? It's chaos. And in walks Hagrid and what does he say? Sorry about that. <laughs> and the whole place laughs. Well, us us as readers, us in the audience, we laugh. <laughs> and this says so much. This says so much. Because the clashing of the worlds for one person is this huge, traumatic, big event, and Mr. Dursley's got his gun out, and for Hagrid, he's just sort of shrugging his shoulder, saying, oh, sorry, and he picks up the door and puts it back on its hinges. And then Hagrid then proceeds to come in and sit down and he lights up the fire with his umbrella, pulls out some sausages, makes some tea, and he starts having a big picnic. For him, it's just totally normal. And this is the clash between a person from the other world coming into our world, coming into the Muggles' world. Well, Mr. Dursley points the gun at Hagrid and says, you are breaking and entering. And in the book, well, Hagrid just ties up the gun in a little bow and throws it to the side. And that says something about the difference between someone from another world and someone from our world, which is that these big dangers are really no issue at all. And if you think about it, if you really think about what's it like to have a gun pointed at your head, that is a very dramatic image. I, for one, have never had a gun pointed at me before. And I've seen it lots of times in movies. You see it all the times in the movies. And the reason it's always in the movies is because it's so dramatic. It's immediate danger. You're facing death. Mr. Dursley is going to blow his head off. He'll be dead in an instant if you don't do what he says. And you'd think with that image that Mr. Dursley would be the one with all the power. The shocking power of having someone held at gunpoint. And yet for Hagrid, he sort of, just like he busts the door off the hinges, he just shrugs his shoulders and says, eh, no problem. Just get over yourself. Throws the gun aside. And the deeper message is that in our world, we have dramas and we have fears that to someone from another world, 
may nothing. The most dramatic thing that you can imagine of being faced with gunpoint is to some just, eh, get over yourself. Hagrid then proceeds to sit down with Harry, and he's very nice. He gives him a birthday cake. He then proceeds to talk to Harry about all sorts of things. And he continues to say, well, this is just normal normal information, right, Harry? You knew you were a wizard. You knew you are ready for Hogwarts. I'm here to take you to Hogwarts. And you knew about your parents and all these sorts of things. And Harry is, is shocked. He's saying, what's Hogwarts? What about my parents? And Hagrid turns it to him and says, you're a wizard, Harry. And he says, I'm a what? I have no idea what that is. And Mr. Dursley keeps butting in and saying, no, no, this is not how it's going to happen. This is not true. And then actually out comes another story from the Dursleys, a different side of the story, which is that what was the, what was the ending, what was the, the reason, or what were the circumstances around the death of Harry's parents? And Harry finds out that his, his auntie and uncle were not telling the truth, and they knew They knew something. They knew more than they told Harry. And as it appears, well, as Harry is sitting there talking to Hagrid, it turns out that actually Hagrid knows more than these people. Hagrid not only knew his parents personally, but he can talk openly about them. And he can talk freely about them to Harry. Another thing Hagrid says is, well, you're a thumping good wizard, Harry. And Harry reflects and he thinks, well, this doesn't make sense. What you're telling me doesn't make sense at all. It doesn't fit with what I've been told. So it's not as if... There's sort of of three ways it can go about. You You can have your upbringing and your parents tell you all these things about you. And then you realize, well, that's not true. And then sometimes some people come along and they start telling you things about you. And you think, well, that could fit. That does work. And then there's this third option, which is what's happening to now, to Harry now. And it's someone who's telling you all these good things. Your parents might be telling you you're good for nothing, like Harry's auntie and uncle did. And then Hagrid comes along and tells him, well, you're a wonderful wizard. You're from another world. And that also doesn't fit. So this, uh, this crisis of what am I is part of this growing up. What does it mean, I'm a wizard? And of course, Harry doesn't accept it. He's even thinking to himself, well, I used to get bullied by my cousin, I used to get beat up. 
And if I'm such a good wizard, why would that happen? And so he's trying to fit these different parts of his life, of his inner world, of his memories, with this new information that someone is telling to him. And they go off and Hagrid and Harry spend more time together. And Harry finds out even more. He finds out about this dark lord, Lord Voldemort. And Hagrid tells him more and more about his family and the wizarding world and what's it like to be in this world. And as we find out later on, that actually Hagrid doesn't know that much And there's even a point where Hagrid says, I don't know if I'm the right person to tell you all this. I don't know if this is the right way for you to learn this information about you, yourself. And that really says something about the difference between a character who is from the other world and someone who's from this world. Because by contrast, Hagrid knows a hell of a lot more than Mr. and Mrs. Dursley. He does, really. And he's much more comfortable talking about it. But on the other side, well, Hagrid really doesn't know all the details. And Hagrid probably wasn't too close to Harry's parents, as compared to some of the other characters that we meet later on. But what what does that say? That means someone from the other world who only knows a little bit actually knows a vast amount more than someone who's never been to that world. So Hagrid also has this moment with Harry where he's describing certain things about Voldemort and Harry has a flashback or he has a transsomatic experiencing and his scar starts to hurt. And that opens up this thing of Harry's relationship to the Dark Lord of the inner world, and it's the birth of his awareness that there is something in him that is bad. And this has also been preempted by the bad dreams that Harry has. He keeps having these nightmares. So as a child, he has nightmares. And now that he's talking to Hagrid, he's having this more conscious somatic experiencing, and the scar is hurting while he's actually awake. And it's only a passing thing. It's only the, uh, a little thing that happens, but it's something that comes up again and again. And then Hagrid, he also has this moment where he tries to turn Dudley into a pig, but turns out he's already too much like a pig, so it doesn't work. And they go to this other world. They meet these uh, other wizards, and people are always coming up to Harry and saying, welcome back, Mr. Potter. And he goes to the Gringotts Bank and the Ministry of Magic, well, not the Ministry of Magic, he, he's getting something for the Ministry of Magic. And Hagrid is trusted by Dumbledore to get something from Gringotts. And that, again, shows Hagrid's trust, ha- Dumbledore's trust in Hagrid. And Harry's sort of thinking, oh, what could it be? Something very special. And then Harry's learning about the Ministry of Magic, which... Their main job is to hide the wizarding world from the muggles. And Hagrid says, 
Well, if everyone knew about the magic world, everyone would be wanting magic solutions to their problems. And the question there is, well, is there an active... Are there people in this other world actively trying to keep it from other people? And the answer is yes. And never in a black and white sort of way, never in an obvious sort of way. It's more complicated than that. And the reason is, if we think this through, is that, well, if these two worlds found out about each other, then they couldn't exist. One of them would overtake the other. One of them would suppress the other or attack the other, or there would be some sort of division which causes a clash. And you can see how much drama there is when just one person meets just one other person from the other world. There's so much drama that if, if, if multiple people from both sides were to find out, well, then there'd be war. So the Ministry of Magic is there to keep it hidden from the muggles. And Hagrid gets robes and books and other things. And Harry's looking at the broomstick. And Hagrid says, oh no, you're not allowed to be in Quidditch because first years aren't allowed. And Harry, Harry meets Professor Quirrell at the Leaky Cauldron. And this Professor Quirrell is an important character in this story that we find out later on. And Harry's first impression is that, well, Quirrell, you know, it's like the name Quirrell is quivel or qu qu quivelling, quarrelling, quick, like shaking, a bit nervous. And he's this really jittery, nervous character. And we find out why later on. And actually, there's another important character which Harry meets when he's doing his shopping for all his school supplies and discovering this new world. And that is that he walks into the robe shop and he sees this boy getting his measurements done. And this is something that's different to the movies. But this boy is sort of, he's sort of proud of himself and it's like he's being pampered. Like there are servants measuring him and they're all saying, oh, this is important. Oh, yes, we'll make sure you have the best robe. And he's sort of standing there all proud. And he talks about certain things that Harry has no idea about, like Quidditch. And he says certain things. He has a cut, cut away, a bit of a sneer at Hagrid. And he says something about all oh, those types. And you're not one of those types, are you? And Harry's talking to him for a bit and he realises, well... This boy obviously knows a lot more than me, but I don't really like how he's telling me these things. Now, when Harry was with Hagrid, when Hagrid was telling him certain things, well, there was a warmness to it. There was a caringness to it. Whereas with this boy in this robe shop, well, he seems quite proud. And he asks Harry if his parents were our kind. And Harry doesn't really know how to answer. He doesn't know what that means. And this boy, we know, is Malfoy. And by looking at it, it seems that, well, 
Malfoy is a bit of a chosen one. He's a bit of a spoilt boy. But not in the same way that Dudley is spoilt. And we find out that, well, Malfoy does have parents that spoil him. But not in exactly the same way. And with the benefit of hindsight, we can say that, well, in many ways, Malfoy is the chosen one in this story. But in a very different way to Dudley and in a very different way to Harry. And we find that out later on. Harry also goes to get his wand. And Ollivander remembers details. He's a man of detailed. And he says something about, oh, it seems like only yesterday that your parents were in here buying their first wands. Harry. And there's this curious moment. Very curious. Where Harry gets the wand that suits him. And Ollivander says, The wand chooses the wizard. And that's very important to understand. It's very important to remember that certain objects in in this world, in this magical world, have their own motives or their own urges, their own longings. They have their own tastes. And of course, these are all just descriptive words that want to get at something deeper. These are surface words at the How could we say? We need to be poetic in how we describe a wand. It has a life of its own. And your relationship as a wizard to a wand depends not just on you. It depends on the wand. And it's a very unique relationship. It's a personal relationship. Because each wand is very unique. And there are related wands... And we find out that the wand that chose Harry has a brother. And that brother wand was actually the wand of Voldemort. Which is very unique indeed. Very curious. So Harry reflects on all this. And he also notices that, well... Hagrid's wand is a bit funny because it's in an umbrella and he finds out, well, he's not supposed to use magic, but it's one of those things that people sort of turn a blind eye because Hagrid doesn't do anything too serious with his, with his magic. And he goes off and Harry gets to the station to go to his school, to go to Hogwarts. And he meets the Weasleys, and he meets Ron, and Ron is sort of trying not to be a mummy's boy, saying, get off me, mum, and she's trying to polish his cheeks or something. And there's a younger sister there as well, which Harry notices. And Ron mentions that his mother has a second cousin who's an accountant, but they never talk about. 
And that's quite funny because that's a reversal of the worlds in that one cutaway line, just like in our muggle world and the world of the conservatives, of the Dursleys, when there's someone that doesn't fit in, we just don't talk about them. We keep them hidden, locked away under the stairs. and We never mention them. We never say anything. Well, it appears that the same thing occurs in this magic world. Ron's mother has a second cousin who's an accountant. You don't get much more conservative than an accountant. (laughs) It really is the quintessential conservative way to live as an accountant, isn't it? So that was very clever. I don't know if that line is in the movies. I think it's just in the book. So all these wizard, this wizard world, you can imagine this this big family of wizards all feeling like they're normal, and yet one of them, some distant relative, is an accountant. How weird. What a strange thing to be an accountant. And that contrasts the difference between the two worlds. And they get on the train and they make friends and Hermione is helping Neville find his toad and... They sort of become friends, but not really. And then Malfoy makes a comment about his parents and his friends. And they're learning. Harry's learning things more about the world, about the chocolate frogs and the cards and all these sorts of things. And the the important thing to understand about Harry's trip from London to Hogwarts is that critical moment where he steps through into the other world. So he's in his muggle world, and he's on the station, and so far everything has been basically normal. I mean, he's sort of gone into it when he's gone into Diagon Alley to get his school supplies. But now when he goes for the station and he gets to go through the portal to platform nine and three quarters, and uh, the Weasleys have to show him how to get through the portal... We notice something, and this is very important to notice because this is the difference between the two worlds. Think it, think it through. He's on the station. It's a busy station. He's got his luggage. There are trains about. There are families saying goodbye. There are ticket masters and so on. And this is London. And he runs towards the portal and he goes through and all of a sudden he's in a totally different world. He's transported entirely to a completely different place. And yet, look at what's happening. He's standing on a station with his luggage and there's families around and there's a train around and the ticket master is around and people are saying goodbye. And in so many ways, it seems like these two worlds are exactly the same. Where's the difference? What is so magical? It's almost like he didn't have to go through the portal at all. And this scene of the train station is a very deep anchor in this story. And it only comes up at very critical times. It's really the the staple start and end of each story. I 
And it's beautifully illustrated here how two worlds, two places which are light years apart, are actually very similar in many ways. So I think that will be enough for today's episode. And we'll leave ourselves just at the point where Harry's on the train to Hogwarts. So if it's comfortable for you to do so, I invite you now to just sit quietly for a few minutes and to come back to silence. And that's all I have to say for now.